Matthew 24, verse, we'll begin reading with verse 10, and then we're going to read two other passages of Scripture today. One more week in this particular series, then we're going to move on to something super, just really good that the Lord has downloaded to us. But let's look at this. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Get this principle in your heart that whenever there is lawlessness in your life, your love will grow cold. When there's that attitude, I can do whatever I want to do, it literally extinguishes any love. Because how many of you know, Paul would write, the love of Christ is going to constrain me. It's going to keep me moving the right direction. Now go with me to Hosea, the book of Hosea, chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, we're beginning with reading with verse 14. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Everybody say allure. allure. Okay, try it again. Allure. allure. Big word for some of you. I will allure her and will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Now drop over to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading with verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, these are huge words, my own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you made it rest at noon, For why should I be as the one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats besides the shepherd's tents. Jesus, I ask that you would come this morning and you would give us divine listening. You would give us spirit-filled hearing to hear what it is the Spirit is saying to the church in this day and hour. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, I'm all ears. Come on, just do that. I don't know if you noticed uh, in the pre-service, Brian had some stuff running on the screen here of announcements. Uh, Two of them I want to make sure you have on your heart and in your calendar. February 28th will be a merge service here. Both sides will be here. And uh, we'll have our, a special guest by the name of Roger Hillegas. Those of you who, I think some of you heard Roger last year, at least the leaders did. If you've never heard Roger Hillegas speak, it is an absolute treat. Roger is not a classical preacher in the sense of he's not going to blow your socks off with his style. He's very methodical and very, very good. He teaches on the spiritual differences between a man and a woman. And it is some of the most incredible material that we, we have been running it through our church on the south side for over 10 years. And we have seen a lot of things happen through this. You know how Ephesians 4.11 talks about, and he gave to the church in the fivefold ministry. Roger is truly, truly, they're right there, Brian, if you're looking for them. Roger is truly, it, that's the keys so he can get back to the other side. Roger is truly a teacher of the Word, and you will enjoy it. That's on February 28th. And I need you to mark your calendars, because the second Sunday of March, I believe it's the 14th of March, um, we're going to be making, we're going to be having a merge service and making a really, really huge announcement that is a good announcement. It's going to affect a lot of people, but it's going to be good. We're going to, at that time, the, the Lord is really prompted my heart 
to lay out for you plans for the next three years and what they entail and how we're going to go about some things. How many of you know God wants to grow us? And in order to grow, we've got to have a plan. We have to have things in order and things laid out. And uh, over the last three months, all I can tell you is that being awakened in the middle of the night through dreams, through things that God was speaking to me, Brian and I began to pray as we're the feeders and the vision casters of this church. And we really feel that God has laid some things on our heart. It's going to be exciting. You're going to love it. And uh, how many of you think that's you're already curious? Well, good. Get real curious because it's going to be great. So get that in your head, March 14th. You'll probably hear rumors from time to time. That's good. More rumors, the better. And uh, (laughs) now let's talk about last week we dealt with God's grace. And I want to just touch on it again because it's really necessary for you to understand a couple of things. She says here in her spiritual crisis in Song of Solomon, she says, I'm dark but lovely. I have some things going on in my life, and yet, God, you view me as a lovely person. You see me as I am. Now, I want you to write this down. I want you to write this little statement down. God always looks at your potential. God always looks at your potential. He always feeds you at the point of your potential. And and I think that's important that you get into your heart and mind because, because hopefully my prayer for you is that you don't have to go through failure, but when and if you do go through failure, you need to know that God looks at your potential. The enemy comes to accuse you. Now, we are, I'm going through this very methodically, and as you know, I've taken the time to not even, uh, Brian's been preaching on the south side the last couple of weeks, I've been staying right here because, how many of you know, in order to build a great building, we have to have a good foundation? And sometimes we've got to lift up the foundation, especially when you come into a church, it's about, like this one's nine years old, it's had good times, bad times, kind of went through some rough times the last couple of years. You've got to look at the foundation, and wherever there's a crack, you have to start making sure you put in new rebar and do all the stuff that's necessary so that the load of growth, when it comes, will not crack that foundation. And one of the loads that we need, one of the areas that we need to make sure we have understanding in our church and the foundation of our body as we deal with this culture. I was, it was uh, Friday morning, uh, Friday morning I was downstairs in our living room and I had my Bible and it was one of those moments where instantaneously God downloaded to me, uh, you're going to start hearing it the first of March for the two months. God just showed me, he took me to Acts 17 and began to show me how we can penetrate culture. But the church has to make some adjustments and make sure that that foundation is secure. So I'm not preaching or teaching right now for you to go out of here and go, wow, that just touched my soul. I want you not to get information. I want you to get some rebar in your spirit. So because here's the deal, the pastor, and I want you to hear this, the pastor is not the load bearer of the congregation. The congregation is to bear the load and build on top of that. You were called for the work of the ministry. And our goal is to have every one of you fulfilling your potential in the work of the ministry. And so in order to do that in the culture in which we live, you've got to have a mindset and begin to think in this mindset that God is working in me even in my failure. Never waste a failure. Never waste it. Let God fix you there, but don't waste it. Don't say, don't give up at failure. Just don't waste it. Let God build an infrastructure into you that will keep you from going back there again. I love, I have this little deal that I listen to on my iPod. It was a prayer taken out of the the house of prayer. One day, Misty Edwards was sitting at the piano and she was just singing a prayer song to the Lord. 
And she was singing, God, you love me even though I've been here a thousand times with the same mistake. Your love still compels me to come back to you. And she was singing all about how that even in the middle of our worst, that God is not surprised. It didn't take him by shock. He has a plan for it. And he wants to. And every time we fail, he wants us to go after him with a heart. So we can put another piece of rebar in there and another piece. And pretty soon that is built up to where we don't go back there. I have a, a book in my library by a guy who's an Episcopal priest. He had been a, a Hollywood movie actor. I got to meet him one time down in, in San Jose, California, and, uh, and uh, sat under some teaching. But he talks about how that grace, he, he, had, he had turned into it. He had been raised, and it meant something to me because his dad was a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian minister. Now, if you don't know about Scottish Presbyterian pastors, real Scottish Presbyterian pastors are mean. They're strict and they're tough. And this guy had been, David Foster had been raised in a very strict environment. Very, and, and when he became 18, he, his life just fell apart. He got onto the streets of Hollywood. He got, in fact, he was actually an actor in a couple of shows and, and sitcoms and stuff. But he got into a horrible, horrible lifestyle. And then he came to know Jesus Christ, really know Jesus. Not the church, but to know Jesus personally. Well, he had all these bad habits. And all these, I mean, he literally prostituted himself on the streets of Hollywood. And he had all this stuff. And he, one day he was so disgusted because he loved Jesus, but he kept going back through these habits and all this stuff over and over again. And he finally came to the Lord and said, God, I can't take this anymore. Will you fix it? And he says, the Lord literally said, David, I am fixing it because every time you come to me, I'm building something in you. He said one day he was practically in the middle of a sin and he heard the Lord speak to him, say, David, I love you. He stopped. He just stopped right in the middle of that sin. He says he couldn't take it any longer knowing how much God loved him. And he just little by little walked away. And, and he gives this example. He says, if you take a house that's on a foundation and you start a stream of water against the foundation of that, eventually the water washes away the foundation. And he says, that's how grace works in our life, that we just allow the grace of God to keep washing us and washing us. And pretty soon all the bad foundation that's there, he washes away and he begins to build new foundation so that you can build your life on it. Okay. Now here's, here's a concept I want you to get. I want you to write these two words down. Um, didn't get to this last week and, and I heard a guy this week and I had to, I had to, I had to accuse Jess of stealing my notes. And I said, Jess Strickland, you're a thief. And so, <laughs> And uh, but he's a good friend. And so here I want you to write these two words down. I want you to write the word grace and I want you to write the word truth. The word grace and the word truth. Okay. now grace without truth is dangerous. You if you're going to walk in grace, you always have to be balanced by what the truth is. Grace and truth. Jesus, the Bible says in John 1, was full of grace and truth. Why? Because grace without truth becomes a license to be lawless. Truth without grace sets up Phariseeism. So you have to have the two operating at all times. Truth without grace. Now hear this. Truth without grace will only bring change. We don't want change. We want transformation. Change is always temporary. It's an adjustment of a, of a behavior. Here's the best way I, I, like to, I like to look at it. It's people, when they change, they take their carnality underground. They take it where nobody can see it, 
They're still carnal. They still have the same insides. Foundation is still flawed. Then the pressures of life, the building of life comes and it snaps. But when there's grace and truth, it allows for transformation. And transformation is what the word transformation in the scripture, transform, Romans 12 is the word metamorphosis. It literally changes not just how you look, but it's a change from the inside out. I meet hundreds, I've met hundreds of believers across the years of ministry who are seeking change, but not transformation. And the scripture talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we're being changed, but that word actually is transformed from glory to glory. There's transformation. I don't want to be the same person I was a week ago, just simply hiding my stuff. I want to be transformed so that the stuff no longer has an appeal. And that's going to take God's grace, because in the grace of God, here's what happens. A lot of us have what we call truth statements about ourselves. We'll look at, we, and we have, we've written them on our heart. How many of you know that? Some of you have written on your heart, I'm a failure. I'm horrible. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm skinny. I'm bald. Whatever it is, you've got these truth things you've said about yourself. Now, they may be truth to you, but you begin to insert God's grace and let him write on your heart, you'll find a different truth. You'll find that God actually sees you different than you see yourself. And so what happens is grace softens you up for truth. Grace brings you to that point where you can hear the truth about yourself. I've prayed some very dangerous prayers. And uh, thank God the Holy Spirit is so much wiser than me. Because I said, God, just show me what I'm really like. The Holy Spirit goes, are you sure? Yes, I need to know so we can fix this. He'll begin to show me about just about. And I go, oh, you can stop. That's gross. I really don't want to know that about, you know. But how many of you know if he just applies that grace to my life, I can handle it. So we're talking about the difference of transformation and change. I want to be transformed, not changed. There used to be an old song about, you know, just so tired of being changed, stirred, changed. We need to be transformed. And so she, she in our story here, the spiritual crisis that she's going through in dealing with the grace of God, dark but lovely, Dark, but lovely. I want you to get those words in your head. Dark, but lovely. Because here's the thing. Throughout your walk with Jesus, you're going to go through dark times, but you're also going to have to understand at all times, He sees you as lovely. He sees you from a different perspective. And I, 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 you know, I try to, I really want you to get this. God is the one who searches the heart. He looks at the movement of the heart and says, you know what? The rest, of, the rest of the people may be angry, but I've watched their heart. I'm with that person. That's why, and, and I want you to hear this very clearly. Everybody look up here. Because we've got to get this in our foundation. How do we deal with another person's failure? How do we deal with a pastor's failure? A brother's failure? a sister's failure. How do we deal with that? We have to deal with it in the element of grace and truth. Grace is showing grace, but truth is being honest about what's been done. If you don't have the two, you become a very legalistic, heartless people, or if you just have grace, anything goes. And God is not a God where anything goes. He has a specific way you see see, here's the thing that that, that i learned through my life how many of you'd like to know god better you'd like to move further and further and further into god god will only allow you to go into him as far as you are willing to confess 
and to release those things that you've covered in your heart. And so just living with a grace attitude is great, but it leads to licentiousness. Just living with truth, you know, I hear people all the time, we're word people. Well, good, I'm glad for you, but you better combine it with grace or you're going to hurt me. You're going to wound me. Because I've been Bible thumped a few times. Let me tell you something. I was raised with a father that my dad, uh, to the day he died, could quote literally entire entire chapters. Some, I mean, the book of Romans, you just ask him, Dad, what's Romans chapter 6? You know, he'd go, well, and he'd quote it to you. My dad, but here's one of the things that turned me away from church. My dad, when we get in trouble, like if I, he'd say, okay, you got chores to do, I want you to go, you know, you know, go mow the lawn, and I'd get busy playing ball or something, he'd come home and he'd go, you know what Proverbs says about you, son? I said, what? He says, go to that, you sluggard. And so I thought for a long time I was a sluggard. You know, whatever that was, you know, and he'd quote, well, after a while, and it was just, that was the way he was raised. So after a while, when I got in my teenage years, I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not following this stuff. This is stupid. Because every time I turn around, God's mad at me. I'm a sluggard, (laughs) you know, or I'm this or I'm that. I see there was truth involved, but not grace involved. And truth without grace is very heavy-handed. Grace without truth is licentiousness. It's just off the chart. So how do we deal with the fact when somebody fails? You've got to walk this line of dark but lovely. Now, what happens when somebody persists in their failure? They persist in non-repentance. I want to get this key into you, and then we're going to move on to the stuff. But I'm taking time with the few of you that are here. I'm taking time. The South Side has heard this been drilled into them for a lot of years so they got it but here's what you got to you got to come to this point and, and you need, i want you to hear a little background for me first for i've been since age 20 i've been pastoring uh this month will be a certain birthday that'll roll through and i won't tell you what it is but i've been at this for 30 some years we have always for some reason um with the exception of about six years in our life We've gone into situations where there was severe brokenness. Somehow, God would say, I want you to go here, and I want you to deal with this, and you're going to be here for this amount of time. And So we've always dealt with churches that have been broken at the core of their existence. Either a failure by the pastor, a failure by somebody in the church, or disaster had happened or whatever. So we've always gone in. Now, here's, here's one of the things I've learned. If you don't understand repentance, you'll never be restored. You'll never get fixed. And what happens when a person persists in their sin? I want everybody to look up here. I want you to hear this. God's word, the truth, accompanied with his grace, has given us a path to walk in how we deal with somebody who has who is persisting in their sin. We teach people you are always one repentance away from victory. You're always one repentance away from restoration. It is amazing to me, that's why I love Hosea and Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. God will just be laying down the truth to them. He will be listing off all the stuff they're doing. And I mean, he's saying this is going to happen. But he says, now... But if you return to me, I'll return to you. And you know what? I'm going to deal with your transgressions. I'm going to forget if you'll just return to me. But repentance means, see, here's what people forget. Repentance doesn't mean I immediately overcome the sin issue. Repentance means my heart has turned from the sin in my heart now. Jesus, here's my heart. I, I, I want you to be the keeper of my heart. I kept my heart and it didn't work, so you be the keeper of my heart. That's true repentance. And how many of you know when you allow Jesus to be the keeper of your heart, you're eventually going to become transformed to where that which you were sinning in becomes so distasteful that you walk away. 
that God's grace begins to tear down the foundation of the enemy, that the stronghold that's in your life, till it crumbles and you no longer have a need to go back there anymore. Now, what do you do, though, with a person that persists in their sin? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, Paul is very clear. He, he got a little agitated with the Corinthian church because he says, you know what? You're allowing things into your midst that not even culture allows. Yes. And so he t- and here's where grace and truth have got to walk. So he says, listen, this guy over here, he's doing some stuff that not even as good with culture doesn't even go along with this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to separate yourself. And we're going to turn him over to Satan. Now, how many of you know, if that's not coupled with grace, you're going to be a real hardcore militant bunch. Paul later, it gets to the point where Paul later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he comes back and he says, listen, this guy's repented. You need to back off. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7, he says, this sorrow, this godly sorrow has led to repentance. And so you need to accept him back in the fold. You need to put your arms around him. And how many of you would like to attend a church like that where if you fail and you repent, there's, there's a love waiting for you to take you to the next level? Well, let me tell you something. If we're going to minister to this culture in the Portland, Vancouver area, and I don't care what side of the river you are, you're on, the devil's still the devil and sin is still sin and nastiness is still nastiness and people are still people and we better be ready for grace and truth to operate hand in hand. Now, so how many of you, you, got, you understand where I'm coming from? Where do we go from here after, you know, tragedy and hurt and what? And the first thing that I'm going to be praying, that I'm praying for in this church, and I believe it's going to happen in our worship, is there's going to be a fountain of forgiveness open up where we begin to forgive one another, not just for things that have been done, but how about this, for things that haven't been done. For times when you knew you should have said something and you didn't. Times you should have loved and you didn't. Times you should have reached out and you didn't. Now, I've taken a very strong stand on this. And, it's, it's, and I, I really want you to hear my heart. I believe the church should be a safe place. You hear me? Not just for your children, but for anybody that comes in that door. That's why I'm kind of heavy-handed on people. You know, if I hear, yeah, so-and-so, when a visitor... I've literally had people... Now, I'm just going to tell you. I've had to deal with situations where people, when visitors were coming in, they were telling them they were fat. They were telling them they were funny-looking. They made fun of their clothes. Well, I I take a dim view to that. Because you know what? What's coming, even this year, to this place of worship is going to shock you. Because if you want to, you know, I hear churches say, we want to reach our culture. Do you? Do you really? Have you seen what is, well, we live over Vancouver and we're just kind of, you know, we're kind of a little bit, yeah, kind of redneck, a little bit, a little bit this, a little bit. Oh, grow up. It's in your town too. And you can protect yourself all you want from it, friends, but if you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to rub shoulders with some pretty nappy stuff. See, I get real emotional, so I have to keep it in check because it happened even this morning. I, I can't drive down the street without seeing people. So some of the neighborhoods I live in, interesting. Well, this morning... On Halsey, there's this, there's this lady, and uh, she's on a street corner, 102nd in Halsey, bombed out of her brains. So I rolled down the window because I, I want to not only hear, but I want her to hear. And she's absolutely out of her mind. She's talking crazy things, and she's pointing at the heaven and cussing at the heaven and you know that's going on in your cities, right? 
where literally people are speaking against God because of the brokenness in their life. And you say, well, what, that, that's a terrible, that, that woman, they need to just get her out of it. No, I think it's time for the church to wake up. You want to be the church of Jesus Christ? You're going to have to start walking in grace and truth because if you really want to touch your culture, it's going to come through your doors. And we need a safe place where people can come where there's not condemnation about where they're at. But there's God's grace and we're speaking the truth. And how many of you, you getting me yet? You got it? Okay, good. Because that's where we have to go. Now, let's look at this. Pressures of a spiritual crisis. What happens in a spiritual crisis? What pressures happen? We see here in verse 6, she says, Don't look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love. Now, there's five things here that we find out about the pressures of spiritual crisis. First of all, she's ashamed by those staring at her because of her failure. How many of you know if you fail, there's an amount of shame that goes with that failure? And you feel like people are looking specifically at you. That you can't escape their stare. You can't escape. Well, how many of you know God wants to build a church where people who have failed come in and there's not the stare of an angry brother, but there is the eyes of God's love that says, come in, we want to see you restored. So she's under the pressure of the stare. She's ashamed by those staring at her. Um, I, I used to, when, when I was with the denomination, my office, the denomination headquarters, my office in Salem, where my office was at, was just right catty corner to the main entrance. And um, this was one of the reasons I left that particular denomination, was this, was this reason. Um, I spent hours, I mean days, in fact, there were times... I, there were years I was out three months of the year somehow on the road in a motel room someplace across the state of Oregon. Just literally spent that much time with pastors. And every once in a while there'd be a guy who would get involved in immorality or some sort of thing and he'd get called in. And they'd, they'd bring him in and they'd sit him in the, in the outer, because down the hall was the big chief's office, you know. And uh, I'd see him sitting there, and I, I just couldn't help it. I mean, I'd go out and I'd put my arm around the guy, and he'd start breaking and crying, and people are, you know, glaring at me like, what are you doing? Go back to your office. This guy's done a big no-no. I couldn't handle it. And I'd hold them while they weep. I'd make sure that I identified with them later, because I wanted them to know no one's staring at you in your crisis. And I think we need to be a people that don't stare at people in their crisis. We love them. Because you know what? God's not staring at you in your crisis. He's not. Write this down. Shame is a product of hell. Shame is a product of hell. And God doesn't come to shame us. He comes to set us free. The second thing is she's dealing with being rejected by angry brothers. Now, I can tell you something. I have had some guys pull some stunts that were just remarkable. I mean, do things and then look at me like, what? So then we'd have to go through the repentance speech and whatever. But here's the deal. I know what it's like to have my brothers angry with me, and I know what it's like to be an angry brother. It's real easy to go from one to the other, by the way. And, and she here, she's, she's being rejected by her angry brothers. She's being overworked. One of the reasons for her failure here, we find here, is that they made me keeper of the vineyards. She's being overworked by me being made to keep other people's vineyards. Now, I want you to hear this. It's amazing to me with all the technology. I got more gadgets that they have, they have shouldered me with. I got computers 
smartphones, GPS, two di- different kinds of GPSs, because they're worried I'm going to get lost. Uh, I've got more technology that just goes with me wherever I go. Satellite radios. I mean, I could literally link up to the space station. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I've got technology. But here, it's amazing to me with all the technology how overworked we still are. And being overworked, then we begin to not care about the things that are absolutely necessary. You go to, you go to the, the scripture in Luke where you got Martha and Mary, and Martha's just busting her hump to get things done, and yet Jesus is just locked in. Mary's at his feet, and, you know, Martha's upset. She's, what, what's going on? And she's, Jesus says, listen, she's taking care of the one thing that's most important to my heart. Well, one of the things that happens now, and I, I, it's going to sound like I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but I want you to hear this from my heart because, because I had a conversation last week about this and I think it's something that you need to hear. So you hear it from me. Church work is not as important as you keeping your vineyard. Man, if your home's in stress, for crying out loud, call us up. And we'll, we'll give you time off. <laughs> you're the church. And if you're in bad shape, the church is in bad shape. And it's not what you do that matters. It's who you are that matters. And how, does that mean things still, things still have to be done? However, if it's, if it's making it so that you can't keep your vineyard, we need to step back and help you figure out how to keep your vineyard and still be involved. You hear what I'm saying? I, I, I think sometimes the American church has overworked its people to the point that when they do fail, they're just, well, I don't understand why they're failing. Well, think about this. You work eight hours to ten hours a day. You get a little bit of time with your kids. You go to bed. You get up and do it again for five, six days a week. And then Sunday rolls around. Now, do I believe the kingdom of God is of the utmost importance? It's the most important thing because it's going to be eternal. Your job's not going to be eternal. Your, your, nothing that you have in this world is eternal. Only your soul and, you know, your lot. Now, here's the deal, though. And this is how we operated with our family. I remember when the girls were just little, man, I was just... Um, I remember when Jennifer... I, I look at Ellie. I'm enjoying... By the way, Ellie turned, turns a year old tomorrow. Uh, but when I hold Ellie, uh, it, to me, Ellie's been a blessing to me because I get a pickup on lost time that I didn't get with Jennifer. When Jennifer was a baby, I was getting up at 5 o'clock, driving to 45 minutes into the university where I was going to school, get home by 1 o'clock, do about an hour and a half worth of homework, eat lunch, go work at Bayliner Marine Corporation until 11 o'clock at night, come home, wake up Jen for about a half hour, do homework till about 1 in the morning, get up at 5 and do it all over again. And also was the youth pastor of a church. Now, how many of you know something got neglected? She not got neglected, Jennifer got. So the older we got, I remember, never forget when God began to deal with me. That's why we'd be, I just, we just started taking family vacation every year. Our girls, one thing our girls will tell you, we had great vacations. You know why? Because I realized something. I can gain the biggest church in the world, but if I lose those girls, I've lost my own soul. You think, well, this is anti-growth. No, this will grow a church when people learn that the church is more concerned about you than they are its own self. You hearing me? You're more important than an organization. I should be, you should be on your feet by now going, yes, preach it. <laughs> some of you are, in, I, I look at you, some of you are in shock that the pastor would say that you're more important than the organization. You need to hear it. Now, does that mean you, you, you don't need to be in church? Hebrews is very clear. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together because the days are evil. We're in a time where you need one another. You need the teaching of the word. You need the worship. You need the time to come together. But friends, 
Let's get our priorities right. Let's get our lives right with God, our families right with God. Let's get our finances in order and grow as a church. Okay? So she, her own vineyard, she, and she allowed her own vineyard, her own heart, not to be kept up. I want you to go with me to Proverbs chapter 24. How many of you are tracking with me? How many of you heard what I just said? Don't misinterpret it, but how many of you heard what I just said? We need you, but not at the expense of your family. <laughs> verse, chapter 24 of Proverbs, verse 30, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. So I have two conditions to this guy. He's lazy and he just doesn't get it. Okay. And he says, and there, there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. And I looked at it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little TV, a little computer, Facebooking for hours at a time, a little folding of the hands. In rest, so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. If you don't keep your heart and the vineyard of your heart, trust me, weeds will grow. And as they will grow to the point that they'll tear down, you know, the walls here, when it talks about it just tears down the walls, can you imagine all those things that you've built up in your life regarding God, allowing yourself to become so lazy that it begins to tear everything down? Right. Now, she says here, she says that, that, that she's having to serve Jesus at a distance. Song of Solomon chapter 1, she's serving Him at a distance. My own vineyard I have not kept Verse 7, for why should I be as one who veils herself? You know what? I find a lot of people, because of maybe sin issues or problems in their life, they'll veil themselves. That one of the things we were praying Thursday night, as we were singing and praying Thursday night, was God, reveal yourself, take away the veil. Reveal yourself, take away the veil. Because here's the thing, we don't see God clearly because we've veiled ourselves. We've put up a barrier between us and God, because we know our failure. And we think, man, I don't want you to see this. What's the funniest thing in the world is, 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 is thinking that God doesn't see your failure. It is hilarious how we, we're like my five-year-old grandson. I mean, literally, we get these imaginary things going. We had quite a day with him Friday. It was, uh, it was great. And uh, how many of you know five-year-old boys? I don't. I was one, but I raised all girls. And so this little guy is really messing with my head. And, and he's just a weird kid. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. He's just strange. And he was having one of those days where he's, having, he's with Papa and Nana. He's having a meltdown, and I'm trying to keep myself from melting down because I'm thinking, oh, you know, finally I just told him, I said, I'm going to call your dad. He said, well, I'll get in trouble. I said, well, you get in trouble because your dad loves you. He loves me and I get in trouble? And it's like, he'd look at me like, that's the stupidest statement you've ever made, Papa. That's just terrible. So uh, i got to tell you, this is hilarious. So I called his dad and I handed the phone to his dad and he said, I don't want to talk to my dad. I said, dude, you got to talk to your dad because he, he was melted down. It, he had, I don't know what it was, but he'd come to the end of the road. And when he comes, that's the neat thing about grandkids when they come to the end of the road, you get to send them down the road. <laughs> so I'm in the process of sending him down the road. And uh, so I said, well, we're going to take you home. I don't want to go home. I said, well, you're going home, dude, because I'm not living with this. And, uh, and I'm trying to tell him, I said, man, you've got it so easy my grandfathers would have sent me into an orbit around the moon, you know, because hey, uh, how many of you know the old school Depression era grandfathers were pretty like, oh, mm. uh, so we're driving home. So we get to his street and he knows he already knows his dad's told him, you get home, buddy, you're toast. And so we pull down his street and I hear this voice in the back seat going, well, I guess it's time to say goodbye to me. 
I'm starting to laugh, and he go, then I hear this him go, goodbye, Malachi. It's been real. And seriously. Then he goes, you know they're going to make me stay out in the yard. I said, what? He says, yeah, my dad's got weapons. I said, what weapons? Swords and knives, and he'll make me stay out in the yard. I said, are you telling the truth? No, I dreamed this, but it could be true. <laughs> We're kind of like that with God. And we don't think that God doesn't see our heart. He sees our heart. And yet we're playing mind games with, He's going to make me stay out in the yard. Because He's got weapons. And we say goodbye to ourselves. Goodbye. I'm dead. When God say no. The minute you... God delights in hearts that turn to Him in failure. He delights in hearts that say, I do love you more than anything else, and I'm, I don't want to disappoint you. Now, we've got to hurry here, but we don't. We've got all the time we need. How to have more of Jesus. Song of Song, verse, chapter 1, verse 7. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where do you make it rest at noon? We begin to get the sense here that she's desperate to encounter Jesus. She wants to know where he feeds his flock. She wants to know where he will satisfy his spirit. You know know what the basis of all church growth is? Can I tell you what the bottom line of all church growth is? Because we're seeing it happen. You can run a, a fancy program, lights, all that stuff. That's all fine. You can do all that stuff. I'm not against it. In fact, wish we had the money to do some stuff ourselves. But here's the deal. Bottom line of, of it all. If there's not some place where people can be fed in their spirit, they'll attend for two, three years. Churches will grow and they shrink. Why? Because Joe Blow over here just suddenly has a new, new lighting package. Hear me? And everybody rushes over there trying to satisfy their spirit. I think we need to beat the rush and begin to be a place where Jesus satisfies the spirit. Where there's a push for his word into our life. Where we warm ourselves by the word of God to where that's what begins to satisfy us. Not because Can you imagine this? What's going to happen in culture to the church culture when some of this stuff doesn't work anymore? See, right now we've concentrated on the 20-somethings, and I agree with that. I think that's right. But what happens when they're 30-something? And we've not put the word into them. And we've, we've just made it an experience and not a lifestyle. These are the questions that your elders... And your staff are asking them. We are literally spending hours. Brian and I especially, we spend hours talking these things. Because you know what? I'm coming to, you know, 20, 30 years, I might be done here. (laughs) But here's the deal. I don't want to come to the end of my tenure of serving God and just have people who've had an experience but not been transformed by the Word. So there has to be that understanding. She, Jesus longs for us to be honest with him. He doesn't want us to write ourselves off, off as hopeless hypocrites. It pleases him when we confess that, that we want him to feed our heart like he used to. Remember that all of us have a time in our life where we were growing in God. We were moving in God. I mean, every time we picked up the Bible, it made sense. You know, I mean, we could even read Leviticus and go, oh, man, God moved. Let you read that in Leviticus. They were sacrificing things. And I just, and we got it all, you know, and we're going, we're just doing great. And then we hit bumps in the road. She wants Jesus so bad. She says, feed me and feed my heart like you used to. Revelation 2 says, Jesus says, return to your first love. Get back to that point where you're in love with God. She says, I'm tired of serving you at a distance. Can you imagine what would happen to the church, to this church, if we just decided we're done serving Jesus at a distance? But we're going to get close to him. 
She's, she confesses, listen, my vineyard has weeds in it. Things are going wrong. I'm failing. People are angry. I need you. You whom I love, I really, really need you. Those right there, those four things, five things, are the things that we're, our prayer is that we'll start hearing those come out of this church. We'll start hearing that cry in the body of Christ. Not that we need this, that, or the other thing, but you know what? I need to be where I've been with God. I need that one whom I love. I know my vineyard's messed up, but I want God. I want God. And there's just that constant cry. Because when that constant cry starts going up, God responds. God responds. Now, the shock of love. She's expecting a rebuke. Yet he woos her heart with the beauty she possesses in him. Basically he's saying, listen, I know there's weeds in your garden and you're serving me from a distance, but I see the cry in your heart. Now, I'm going to finish with this. How do I establish intimacy with God? Elizabeth's going to spend eight weeks out at the Whitman's teaching. Anybody can come on intimacy with God. It is absolutely the foundation of everything we're going to do here. If you, as believers, don't want to be intimate and know God on more than just a church basis, you're going to come a point you're not going to like it here. It's going to get irritating to you. Because I don't know if you've noticed the worship songs. They're about intimacy with God. Because here's the deal. How many of you really do believe Jesus is coming? How many believe he's the bridegroom coming for his bride? then I've never met a bride and bridegroom that I've done their ceremony that they hated each other. They're in love. And she walks down the aisle and he's just going, oh, man, yes. This is good. And she's just, I, you know, I get a little nauseated when I, but you know, it's, it's she, they're doing their vows. They're just looking at them. And, you know, every once in a while I like to go like this, you know, and just. But, but how many of you know they're in love? There's intimacy. There's. You know, what would happen if the church got stars in their eyes over Jesus? Whoa. What hap- what's going to happen to the bride if they fall in love with the bridegroom? Do you realize the power that's released with that? That all of a sudden the voice of the bridegroom is heard in the church again? That the voice and the workings of the bridegroom are heard in, in conjunction with the bride? Do you realize the change? So we, we want to move us, and it'll take a while to turn the ship, into under having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. Church isn't going to fix you. But having an intimate walk with Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday will ultimately change your life. And so there's, four, there's three things that have to happen with intimacy. And it's found in verse 8. He says, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. Feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. There's three things that will help your intimacy. You ready? Number one is a commitment to the body. He says, listen, follow in the footsteps of the flock. A commitment to the body. And here's what that means. It's not just gathering on Sunday morning. It's refusing unsanctified isolation. Wherever I see people withdrawing, from fellowship and from conversation from the body, I get immediately concerned. That's called unsanctified isolation. Now, there is a time Jesus would go away by himself to pray. That's a sanctified isolation. You can go, but there's, but I'm talking about where because of maybe how the brothers have acted. Or maybe this person's done this or this circumstance where there's this unsanctified isolation. If you're going to be intimate with God. Now, how many of you heard my story last week on grace growers? Okay. Now, here's the deal. You got things in your life that are really irritating you. You move away from them. I got news for you. There'll be a new crop show up wherever you go because God is dead set on you growing in grace. 
So you get away, you can get rid of all your troubled people. I guarantee you some new crops will come in because God ain't done. And so there's this unsanctified isolation. So I have to be committed to body life. I have to be committed to walking with you. I have to be committed to knowing you. I have to be committed to what God wants to do in this earth, in the kingdom of God, through his church. So I have to be committed to body life. Second of all, I have to be committed to servant ministry. I need to refuse unsanctified idleness. <laughs> Kid will come to me, Pastor. I, I'm really having trouble with this this habit. I can't I can't break it. It's okay. You work? Yeah, I, I work. What time you get off work? Three o'clock. What do you do at three thirty? Well, I go back to my apartment and uh, I do this, this, and this, and this, and and this, and and what do you do in the evenings? Well, I get out with some friends. And we hang out. Not, you know, we hang out. So I have to be careful because I come from a gif- different generation. This is the generation I come from. I was, I'll never forget. I'm 12 years old, and I'm over at my grandparents one day. My grandfather comes in and he says, uh, go get in the car. Oh, we're going to get ice cream? He says, no, I got you a job. Uh, Excuse me? He says, you're 12 years old and you're just sitting around here doing nothing. So I went and got you a job. I was working by the time I was 10 and you're going to start working. What? Get in the car and I'm... So you know what my first job was at 12 years old? I shined shoes and swept up hair. At a barber shop. I've never stopped working since I was 12. Now, our culture with its technology has lended itself to a lot of idleness. Which, for the believer, should be an okay thing because it should give us more time to be in the Word and to serve others. And beca- But instead, we've allowed idleness to overtake us it, and, and it is amazing to me how the computer will suck you in, how the TV can suck you in, how all kinds of things can suck you in to an idleness. I was sitting in, in at that time it was, uh, was, it was a restaurant in Eugene. It was, uh, what's the crab place? Uh, anyway, it, Red Lobster. I'm sitting in Red Lobster in Eugene. This old guy that I'd known for a long time, we went to lunch, and uh, he since went on to be with Jesus, in fact, this year. That time I was, I was my late 30s, and he was already in his, he'd retired. He says, I, I, I wanted to meet with you, and I said, well, what's up, Jim? What can I do? And he just starts to weep. He says, I said, what, is there some tragedy? He says, no, I, I've come to give you a message. And I said, what? I mean, we're in, we're in Red Lobster. And tears just dripping off his face. I said, what? He says, learn to pray now. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? He says, if you don't learn to pray now, you're going to come to an age like mine, and you're going to look back and say, oh, God, the hours I wasted in idleness and not talking to you. Paul puts it this way, redeeming the time for the days are evil. I think the church is the worst time managers in the world. We don't redeem our time. And we're trying to escape the pressures of life through things that don't bring escape. So I have to be committed to servant ministry. To refuse unsanctified idleness. And then I have to be, make a commitment to spiritual authority. And that's not talking about just church authority. It means I refuse unsanctified independence. Now I'm going to make some statements here, whether you agree with them or not, I really don't care. I'm just going to give you Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ, you know, we have, a, we have several movements that have been released in the United States especially, that I don't believe are from God. And I can show you chapter and verse in the scripture. 
But for instance, there's been a huge, and I, I get into it with guys over this it, it, because I feel very strongly. You know, uh, house church movement. I think that's great. If you want to meet in your home, that's great. But the first church in the book of Acts was not a house church. Three grand got saved on the day of Pentecost. Three thousand. Historians tell us that the church in Thessalonica, by the time Paul settles in and he's left and he sent Timothy back to pastor that church, it was numbering 25,000. Do I believe in small groups? Absolutely. But here's the deal. There ain't no house church in heaven. So what do you mean? Check it out. Wave upon wave. Thousands upon thousands standing before the throne of God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. There is an isolation that's happened in America in the church where people don't want to be under authority. Now, I'm not talking about heavy-handed. I'm talking about simply submitting your life to the apostolic leadership in the Bible. Prophets, apostles, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. Learning to submit you. Let me tell you something. And you need to hear this. I want to, I'm going to remind you of it all the time. I bring myself, not just in the submission with the elders of this church, but I have some guys, in fact, I'll just tell you, right now, every three weeks, I'm meeting with Pastor Dick Iverson. He's 80 years old, and, and, and we've made an agreement because I said, Sir, I need what you got, and I want to learn how to grow old and be successful. So I, and let me tell you something, it's not always fun, because he can really, he's not nice sometimes. And there's other guys that I submit my life to. Why? Because I don't want to have unsanctified independence. To where I'm just doing whatever I think is okay for me to do and never come. But do you know how many people in the church are involved in unsanctified independence? I'm not having that that Sunday school teacher tell me anything. I'm not having, bless God, Bob Bennett ain't telling me anything. Well, he's not me either, so just don't worry about it. But uh, how many of you know what I'm saying? There, you know, there is a, a place... And I, I, you know, I, 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 how many of you remember when you were a teenager? That's why I really love my grandson. Yeah, yeah, good deal. Um, uh, my grandson, I, I listened to my serious satellite radio in the car, and uh, he, he'll say, Papa, turn it on the 70s. So there's a whole channel given to 70s music, and so he starts the head banging in the back seat, you know, and, and all that. He's my 70s child, you know. And, uh, but, but how many of you know, when you were a kid, you used to throw this at your dad and your mom. When I get out on my own, I'll do what I want. What a joke. I got out on my own, got married, had kids. I haven't done what I've wanted for years. <laughs> You know, you drive to the edge of town with your car going, I wonder what it would be like just to drive. (laughs) But you don't because you can't do what's just what you want to do. There's an unsanctified independence that's crept into the church. And the churches that are going to build strong, healthy, growing places are churches that are, and I'm not talking pastoral authority. I'm talking Ephesians chapter 5, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. I can't get to everybody, but you can submit to one another. Submit to one another. How many people really know about your life? How many people know your life and the tracks you take? How many, you know, y'all have a habit trail, right? Places you drive out of. How many know your habit trail? It's important that somebody knows. It's important. Unsanctified independence. You want to get intimate with God? Because here's the deal. And and I'm very serious. We're going to close with this. I'm very serious. Angel, if you could go play the piano there, honey. I'm very serious. If you can't submit, we'll use Gary here. Gary's a nice guy and, you know, Joyce has got him pretty well straightened out and, 
But here's the deal. How many of you see Gary sitting there? Show me your hands. You see Gary sitting there? Come on. Some of you are going, Gary who? Right here. Gary Robinson. How many see Gary Robinson? Now, Gary's a believer, right? So in our interactions, we're going to have to submit to, to Gary in the fear of the Lord. If I can't do that to someone I see, how in the world am I going to submit to a God that in the physical I cannot see? I can, there have been times I've had to submit to some things. I, I'll tell you a story. I, one day I'd gone up, uh, up to the hill to Pastor Iverson's office and I was sitting there and I was just pouring out my heart. And We were going through a really rough time. We were being sued by an organization and it, it was horrible. And I just, it was by a Christian organization and it was just a denomination that just, it was just, things was bad. He leaned back in his chair and he finally said, Son, he says, I, I want you to do something. I said, What? He says, I want you to call and make an appointment with those with those people. He says, I want you to go in and see them. And I want you to tell them that you're, stu- you're, you're firing your lawyer. You are going to absolutely submit. I said, Pastor, I'm going to do what? He says, The fight's over. Lay down. I did that. And you think, there because, well, it turned out wonderful. No, it didn't. In the meeting that I went to, to meet with guys that I had served next to for years, they tore me to shreds. But I walked out of there going, all right, this is good. You know why? I had submitted my life to another's authority. And I'd done some things in submission that what didn't feel fun, didn't feel good. But I knew I was covered. And I'll never forget, a couple weeks later, we're standing in the foyer of a beautiful new building we built. Pastor Iverson's standing next to me. I'm just weeping because it had gone from bad to worse. And he put his arm around me and he said this. He said, son, because you submitted, you need to understand I would never let anybody hit my bride in the face. And he says, your bridegroom is never going to let the bride be hit in the face without reacting and responding. He says, let it go. And I remember the Sunday that we moved from a beautiful new building to our little hole in the wall, trying to jam 175 people in a room that should only have 50. But you know what? There's something about the grace of God that when you've submitted to those in authority over, even though you you vehemently said, you're crazy? They'll eat me alive. And they did. But I could step back and say, you know what? I'm committed and submitted. I'm not going to be unsanctified in my independence. But I'm going to submit to those in authority. And it's not this, well, I'm the authority. I'm not the authority in this church, friends. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And I remind our elders and I remind myself, I can be replaced. That's why Jesus has to be the head of the church. But now if I can't submit to those that I see around me, I'll never submit to Him. I want you to stand with me.